Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. For those of you that are returning, thanks so much for your support as the podcast grows. And for those of you that are here for the first time, welcome. Glad to have you here, and I hope you learned something today. Now, take note that I am traveling while producing this podcast, so I don't have the advantages of my best gear. So please forgive me if the quality of the production is not up to my usual standard, and also excuse me for using a filter. So that image of a lake you see behind me, nope, I'm not sitting by a lake doing my podcast. I'm actually in an Airbnb in Norman, Oklahoma. Um, That's another story for another day. Today, we have another of our In the C-Suite series. Our guest today is Jeff Levine, CEO of the startup Advanced Scanners, which is based in Austin, Texas. Now, would you believe that this is Jeff's first job in medtech and the life sciences? It is. Jeff and his co-founder, Aaron Bernstein, are building a company around a scanning technology that more precisely deciphers the optical characteristics of tissue and precisely registers these images with surgical navigation. Now, I, I didn't realize this was such a big issue for neurosurgeons, which may be their best and first application. You will soon learn It is a very big deal. And there are other surgical applications. We talk about this technology. Then we talk with Jeff to understand how he got involved in the technology and what he learned in his past career that will contribute to the success of advanced scanners. Jeff is a member of the MedTech Leaders community. And MedTech Leaders is a place where Professionals can share best practices, problems, ideas, and solutions, all with the support of live events with subject matter experts. If you would like to learn more about the MedTech Leaders community, you can go to medtechleaders.net. Again, that's medtechleaders.net. You can become a member for $14 per year, and there is a free trial. Now, in the show notes, you will find links to Jeff's LinkedIn profile and the company website, which is very interesting. And if you like the podcast, please recommend it to a friend, rate it, and or subscribe. Now it is time to get together with Jeff Levine to learn about his move into medtech and the revolutionary technology he and the advanced scanner team will bring to market. Jeff, it's great to have you on the Medical Device Success Podcast today. Thanks for making the time to be with me and the audience. Thank you, Ted. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast, so it's exciting to actually participate in it. That's terrific. And I noticed something the other day that you are an acquaintance of Pat Cothy, who is a member. Yeah, that he's a member of the MedTech Leaders community. And he brought that to my attention the other day when he and I were talking and 
the podcast I did the other day with Med Scout, those guys are from Austin too. Austin is a a growing little hub. We have there's a lot of talent around imaging and AI, and a lot of the med tech development is happening in those domains. So Austin is becoming, and we have Dell Medical Center here, Dell Medical School mm-hmm. just opened up. So we've got all the parts to grow substantially over the next couple of decades. Well, that's great. So go ahead and tell us what your role is at Advanced Scanners and what Advanced Scanners is as a company. So I'm the CEO at Advanced Scanners and we're a startup. So that really means that I do everything we don't have. We haven't already hired somebody else to do. And what the company is doing is we're building an optical data platform that's based on a technology that's invented by my co-founder. And what it's going to do is it's going to fill in a bunch of gaps in the digital operating room that will allow us to automate more procedures, which fixes a lot of inefficiencies and workflow issues in the operating room right now. Okay. Wow. That's a lot. There's a lot in between the lines in that statement. And let's confirm another thing that's very interesting. This is your first job in med tech? This is. At my advanced age, an old dog trying to learn some new tricks. I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. I've literally been in startup mode for the last 40 years with a variety of different companies. And a couple of years ago... You know, presented with this opportunity, I tried to avoid it as much as I could. All of my friends telling me that, you know, how difficult med tech was and uh, a lot of things that I I should have listened to more carefully uh, (laughs) at this point in retrospect, they're right. It wouldn't have changed my mind, but med tech is, is harder than everything else in a lot of ways, or at least a lot of the other things I've been involved in, which also makes it more interesting, more engaging. You're, you have these dual you know, motives of trying to save lives and improve lives of patients on one hand, and then on the other hand, trying to make it a sustainable company, not just so-so, but one that is exceptional and can garner investment from the people who want to put money into these, you know, these long commitments to deliver a medical device. Yes. And that can be very long and that can be very frustrating. So you've indicated that it's more difficult than some of the startup activities you had taken part in before, but are you enjoying it? Thoroughly. I think one of the, I, the difficulty is what engages me. Like, okay. and, and, and when, so when I started hearing how hard it is and all the problems that I'm going to have to overcome, that just kind of lit me up. I got excited about the opportunity to learn new things. The people that I started you know, investigating this opportunity with were surgeons and hospitalists and NBCs to explore the opportunity. And it's a great group of people. You know, I, I touched on the motives of people earlier and by and large, you know, the people that we deal with, they're in it for the right reason. So it's, it's easy to feel motivated to work hard to improve the situation. Absolutely. Plus my wife has a friend who, whose child at some has needed brain surgery a couple of times and she's very motivated in the morning. She will literally kick me. Don't you have something to do? Like go build that machine, get it in market. My friend's son might need it in the near future. So, you know, both of us, you know, any, and any startup, this is not unique to medical devices, but any startup, you need the family behind you. Right. And just a moment ago, I, I mentioned that your description of the company and the technology 
had there was a lot in between the lines in that in that statement. And when you and I were in our preparation call and you were explaining to me what was going on with this technology, we were talking about the improvement of registering an image with navigation so that a neurosurgeon would have one, two, three millimeters more accuracy. And that is life-saving in and of itself. I guess a one, and we're gonna talk about that in more detail in just a minute, because I think that's very important. But how did your co-founder come across this technology or how did he decide to pursue it himself? So this happened, I'll tell you the story because I know it very well. This happened before he and I met. So my co-founder, he's an internationally recognized expert in optical physics and engineering. And he has spent the last decade studying the way light, you know, or, or taking data out of high-speed experiments, center of the earth experiments, things they do at Sandy National Labs and things like that. And while he's doing this, this is mostly with lasers, he decided at some point that I think he wanted to scan his son in the crib when his son was an infant and his son just turned 13. So this goes back a little way. So he started, you know, reading the literature and studying scanners. There was nothing that could do what he wanted to do. Simply, it was just kind of hobby level technology for the most part. And so as he's looking and looking at patents, he has a couple of, you know, brainstorms, you know, or ideas pop in his head and he starts, you know, building his own illumination systems and building his own, you know, scanners, really the parts and putting together. And ultimately he built something that is, is just the next generation of, of optical scanning, which gets us the next generation of optical data. So this this machine he invented, it's an optical scanner, but it has some really unique capabilities. So we separate why we need this versus what it can do. The things it does uniquely well, that this, this is our protective moat around the company, is the scanner across an entire craniotomy or a larger field of view than anything else out there is going to capture the 3D shape, position, color, all that information on whatever you put in front of it with resolution that we can, depending on our distance, measure in tens of microns. At the range we work with for scanning a brain, for example, we'll get 200 micron resolution versus the current standard of care, which is generally about one and a half to two millimeters of resolution. For right. many things, a millimeter and a half of error is fine, especially when the surgeon's looking at it and can kind of make this adjustment. But when you're talking about working in the brain, it is a submillimeter gain. And there are many times where if you're looking at certain types of cancer, for instance, they're visually indistinguishable from the healthy brain tissue. So the surgeon needs to know a couple of things. Either he needs to know exactly what tissue to remove with submillimeter precision and accuracy, or he needs some, some way to understand what he's looking at. And we can do both those things. So one, I get the 3D shape, so we'll be better able to position that. But secondly, our scanner is sensitive to optical characteristics that we can detect on the surface. So when we look at a brain, for example, I would be able to tell the doctor on a display or, or superimposed in a headset, however they want to look at it, really pixel by pixel, this, this, this cell is unhealthy. This, this has you know, characteristics that, that might make you want to remove it. It might be cancer, you know, up to, this is certainly cancer. Then a range of, of 
standard deviations, you know, away from how certain we are about what we're looking at. Right. And so he's playing around with this technology, this idea, and he's starting to develop it. And he realizes he has something that is very accurate compared to the other technologies that are in the marketplace. Was he already somewhat involved in the medical industry? Well, so that, so that, I mean, how did how did he associate it yeah, with let me get, surgery? I'll make that leap for you. So he has his friend Patrick who works for us now. He he builds all of our prototypes, and the, the, they, those two got together and they started building prototypes. And Patrick threw a party one day. Aaron and Patrick are in a band together. At this party, Aaron meets a a neuro researcher from the University of Texas, Sultan. And Zoltan says, oh, it'd be really great if you could scan the position of electrodes on the surface of the brain, it would make my data more accurate and I'd be better able to locate epilepsy. Oh. And it's like, oh, this is a great use. I can definitely do that. I can tell you where they make contact and all these things. And so Zoltan introduces him to a neurosurgeon. He was the head of pediatric neurosurgery here at Dell Children's Hospital, Dr. Mark Lee. And they sit down and Mark Lee, here's, here's their plan. And he gives him a pat on the back and says, that's nice. But the real problem in brain surgery is anatomic shift. The brain moves, the machines don't track it. And I spend literally from the first minute of surgery, recalculating in my head, the difference between what I see in front of me and what I see on the screen. Fix that. Okay. So. And I want, and I want the listeners that are, that are listening to this to really understand the term that you just said anatomic shift and how what kind of difficulties that causes a neurosurgeon and the impact that that can have on surgical outcomes patient outcomes okay so here's a scenario i'm a brain surgeon i have a patient i've got a preoperative mri and i can see there's a tumor in there so what i'm going to do is i'm going to put this patient on a table like this one behind me i'm going to bolt their head into position and then I'm going to use a machine that is capable of tracking markers on spheres. And so I'm going to mount rigidly attached to the patient's skull, something with these spheres on it. And then I'm going to use that with another tool. And I'm going to program this is I'm programming the patient's position into the machine, the navigation machine. And so I do this by drawing lines on the patient. And at some point, the machine says, all right, I've got enough data. I can match this with the preoperative image. I find how they fit together. And now I'm co-registering the images. So during surgery, this machine can now superimpose the position of the tools over on, the, on a screen, a 3D model of the patient's brain. So if you think about it, it's just like Google Maps for the surgeon. If you think about the map and you've got that little blue dot you know, that that's yep. where you are, that's where your phone is, right? right? So by default, if the phone's on you, Google Maps knows where you are. It's the same thing. We're telling this machine where the marker is instead of the phone. And we're telling it that the patient's right next to it in this, in this position. So that's great. Now I can do this. However, as soon as the surgeon cuts a hole in the skull, there's a change in pressure that causes the mm. brain to change shape. So it immediately swells. So literally from the very beginning, things are not exactly where they were according to the preoperative images. Now, during surgery, as I treat the brain, as I tilt it, fluid leaks out and the brain is buoyant. So now ultimately the brain shifts with the surface of the brain 
often moving about an inch during the procedure. Wow. So brain surgery is not as accurate. It doesn't have, you know, it's not rocket science, which I, I think we all grew up thinking brain surgery and rocket science are these highly precise things. Brain surgery currently depends a great deal on the skill of the surgeon because the machines are not, you know, are not automating very, very much of this process right now. Okay. So Go ahead. through the procedure, if this tumor now has moved an inch and I'm the surgeon, I can try and calculate my head. And after, you know, years of experience, I will kind of do a, a pretty good job uh, of getting to it and removing something very close to what I was supposed to remove. Right. And then it, I mean, we all know at the end of many cancer surgeries, they go back, they do an MRI, they see how much was missed and it's missed because the doctor didn't perfectly correct the image in his head. That was wrong. Right. So if you, if I know it's a golf ball sized tumor, I'm going to remove golf ball. But if I didn't exactly locate the center of it, I'm going to remove a crescent of healthy tissue on one side. And I'm going to leave a crescent of cancer on the other. So okay. that, that's a perfect example of, of, of a, a use case where we can help by better locating the anatomy and by letting the doctor see in real time what, what tissue you know, is suspect and what's not, we're going to help with these procedures. Amazing. If you use a robot, on the other hand, you know, the, one of the questions I have to get is, okay, that's today, but things are going robotic. Robotics don't have eyes they can do any of these recalculations right now. But with the data that we have on the actual real-time movements and analytics on the surface, this will enable robots. So you can start automating elements of these procedures and get consistently good results. Okay, that is fascinating and amazing. But, and th I think this better or I think this helps me better understand what you were explaining in our preparation calls because many years ago, in the beginning of my career, I was involved in neurosurgery for a company that had neurosurgical implants. And I totally forgot about the whole fact that when you open up the brain, it's going to swell a little bit or shift a little bit because you've just changed all the pressure dynamics by essentially relieving that pressure when you when you you know go through the skull and then through the dura, I totally forgot about that. You probably wiped it out of your mind because it was an awful part of every every procedure. Yeah, it's a little creepy to to see that part of the procedure going on, but you know, it's unfortunately it's really really necessary. And so we've talked about the interoperative interoperative shift. We've talked about the accuracy that's so important and. Now I understand how you connected with the neurosurgeons. That's really great. And it always reminds me of how, ser how much serendipity sometimes leans its way into the development of medical devices and so on. So I, I, I think that's just fascinating. And I've got similar stories that are really unique, but I'm not going to spend our time here recounting mine, but that's just, I just love stories like this. It, I think that serendipity and luck are a part of everybody's success story, whether you recognize okay. it or not, but without a doubt. Yeah. So 
Where are you in the development and commercialization uh, process? Uh, we're not commercial yet. We're, what we are is, I would call us clinical stage. So we began our clinical trials. So we had our first in human just before COVID hit and our hospitals got shut down and we're just about to start going back in. In the meantime, we've had a, a few more IRBs approved. So we've got a number of spine and brain pilot studies that we're kind of standing up right now. Our alpha works great. We've been using the same unit in cadaver studies, bench tests, and in the operating room. So we just really want another few months of trials, you know, some, some more clinical experience before we settle on the, the final, you know, feature set and designs, embodiment, what it's going to look like, how it's going to mount. We have all the things that I talked about, you know, that are important, you know, can you register the patient? You know, can you measure the shift? Can you do all the, all these things we've done in some combination of cadaver studies, our live patient studies and on the bench. So we know that we're kind of 510k ready, kind of got to rewrite our software from scratch and, you know, do some fine tuning on the hardware, but the company is, you know, we're building, we're ready to grow. We're doing our, our series A raise right now, looking for $12 million. And with that money, that'll get us through all the clinical trial work that we have planned. That'll get our first product through the 510k pipeline in about 18 months and through our soft launch of the product. And the first product will be for neuro, any spine and brain case that, you, that uses image-guided surgery. Okay. So perhaps two years? Well, we're on an 18-month. So right now, we're hoping to have our 510K by the end of 2022 and start our, our soft launch, our commercialization at the in Q1 of 2023. Okay. We should have a dozen or so units in the field being used regularly by then just through clinical studies. So another thing that we talked about, because what we've talked about so far is neurosurgery. And of course, it's always optimal to go in and solve a problem where the pain is the greatest, because that's where you're definitely going to get interest and uptake. Did you do much in the way of voice of the customer with neurosurgeons? Have you reached out and talked to quite a few of them or has it been sort of a tight? It's funny you mentioned that. We just, you know, we, we touched on it a minute ago, you know, people telling me why this is such a hard business. You know, one of the things that's unique is, you know, the surgeon is the user of our product, the hospital is the buyer and the, and the user has a lot a loud voice in this case. And one of the things I was told is, if you can't get a surgeon's attention, which Jeff, Mr. No background in med tech, you're never going to get them to talk to you. Give up. You're not, this is not happening without their approval. And <laughs> over and over again, we, I somehow get a surgeon to sit down and talk with us and they sit down with an attitude and like, why am I here? Why are you wasting my time? And we show them a 45 second video that's on my website of how we measured brain shift in a cadaver lab. And inevitably, the demeanor immediately changes. We sit back, we take a deep breath, and we watch them pound on the table and yell for 15 months about how this damn brain shift has been the bane of their existence since the beginning of their career, and they know how to solve it, and they've been yelling at the vendors to solve it for years and years, and they don't. And at the end of that, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's handshakes and how can I help? This is, we get that kind of response. And that was, that was what drove me over the hump of, do you want to get involved in this company to begin with is you hear a bunch of brain surgeons telling you, oh my God, this, this would change every single procedure for the better. 
It's like, all right, I think I'm onto something. That's, that's terrific. And then in the future, you'll be able to apply this to lots of other different kinds of surgical procedures that really require accuracy. I'm thinking of uh, pancreatic cancer where it gets entangled in all those blood vessels. And that's one of the reasons they don't do pancreatic cancer surgery is because it's so dangerous and the, you know, it's the outcome can be so bad if, if somebody has surgery and those blood vessels are compromised. Yeah, we, there's kind of two different directions. It, you know, it, it's one technology like that does two things. So there's a bunch of procedures where the 3D information is valuable, anything image guided. So for that, you know, after neuro, which is a small, but again, highly impactful and profitable space, there's ortho, nine times the amount of procedures in ortho than there is in neuro. There's another million or so good candidates in ENT procedures. The spine also in neuro is growing, is becoming anything that's robotic and the robot needs to see, you know, where it is relative to the patient, we can help. So anything that's going robotic. And then on the other hand is the tissue characterization. You know, we're, we'll build an endoscopic version of this, you know, at some point over the next year or two. And with that, we can go into minimally invasive procedures where sometimes the 3D stuff is interesting, but the characterization is much more interesting. Like doing any, doing any kind of biopsies and exactly what you're talking about, you know, what kind of resolution and, and you know, and how low can we get so that they can actually start picking things away from blood vessels. It's an effort, but I feel we'll, we'll get there. We've, we've shown that our technology can be miniaturized into the size of an endoscope. Sure. No, that's great. So lots of potential going forward, lots of different applications. And a thing I was going to mention to the listeners is that uh, this is not necessarily a standalone navigation system. It's an, it, at the current stage, if I understood our previous conversations about this, it's, it's an addition to the current navigation systems that make them much more accurate. Is that a correct statement? Yeah, I would call us a hardware agnostic source of data that's better than any data source they have now. So this is actually, this piece on the end here is our scanner. It's an earlier right. version and it's attached to the surgical microscope, but it's just this little piece. That's my scanner. And we scan data, we digitize it, and we can share it via updated CT files or, or DICOM files. So we can put out new MRIs and CT, CT scans which are used by the navigation systems, VR systems, robots, you know, all of these things, you know, rely on the accuracy of the navigation to be correct. So I don't really compete with them, but I enable all of those things I just mentioned to actually be accurate and eliminate, you know, the points throughout a procedure where they break, right? They Absolutely. don't watch anatomy. So every time the anatomy moves, they're wrong. We watch anatomy, things get wrong. I can instantly alert the surgical team, pause, patient moved, navigation's off. Here's a fix. Do you like it? Yes, proceed, hit a button. Everything's now fixed and you move on as opposed to now where, crap, you know, this is what happens now. Some, somewhere along the surgery, the surgeon will be touching something and he'll look at the monitor and be like, well, that's wrong, right? And that's significant. It was off by a fraction. They might not notice it this does go unnoticed and so they're like all right who bumped the tracker nobody <laughs> nobody fesses up but it's all right pause we got to re-register the patient you know go through all these procedures again and now we go back we don't know when that got bumped 
So how far back do I need to go and maybe revise some of the work that I've been doing? So this is one example of, of how the navigation breaks during the procedure that causes the surgeon to wonder what's going on with his equipment or her equipment. Okay. So let's shift gears a little bit because I think we've pretty we've explained the technology uh, relatively well, and it really is revolutionary, and it's going to change a lot of people's lives. It's going to make neurosurgeons really happy, and you know patients are going to have much better outcomes. So it's really terrific, and you've got to be excited about that. Let's talk about your career, you know where you came from, and what put you in a position to have a unique role like this. And so one of the things you had talked about was that you'd always been a hustler. And you talked about the first job that you had that has influenced, maybe had one of the biggest influences on your career. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Talking about my paper route? Yeah. So I guess it was, I don't know, third, fourth, fifth grade, like for those few years, I had a paper route. Hopefully some people on this call will remember what that was. And just as a little kid, you learn how important customer service is and you got to go out and do collections and you got to meet your customers and you got to convince them, you know, to keep the paper or get the paper. You build your own, you know, your own book of business, literally at, at that age, right? You get your own customers. There's nobody helping you do that. So unknowingly, I thought that was a great training ground to train somebody to to learn to speak up, to learn to recognize the value, how to give value to their customers. And that's just kind of always been there since then. I've had a lot of different jobs. I've had a lot of different companies at this point. And I really, I've been in startup mode for 40 years. Like I've never had a company where I got to the point where, all right, let's milk this. I'm done growing. You know, sometimes that growth turned into a new company or expanded, but it was always, always loving the challenge of getting customers to just really be passionate about your product. I say that's what fortunately, or what gives me, you know, the greatest, you know, pleasure in the companies is looking at extremely happy customers and people that just really appreciate. So whether I've had martial arts businesses, you know, where, so, you know, I thought we were the best. We had the best instructors. We had the best program. We had the best offering for everybody and constantly growing it. You know, I had a mail order company, you know, I had the best phone service. I had the best response time. I had the best customer service, never ending. And all of those things, you know, are, you know, are equally relevant in the med tech business, but then you have some other things, you know, that just, muddy the waters and slow everything down. I get it. My product can't go in there and maybe not work <laughs> the first time. Like it can in almost every other business, right? right. You know, paper one day, not that big a deal. If you don't, if you don't have navigation for a procedure, it's a big deal. So, so the testing and the quality controls and constraints on, on how you build and, and test things are Again, while well, I understand and I get, I'm not arguing against them, but they don't exist in other fields and they really make a lot of things harder. One of the trends I see in, in the med tech business that I think we can be helpful with is there's a lot of AR, AI platforms and VR systems that are allowing surgeons to really practice 
ahead of time and get away from doing this on real patients. Hopefully that will end up being something that you can use also to kind of validate your medical devices, you know, and testing to get in there rather than on real patients. So what do you think, you know, when you think back, one of the things you were just talking about is, you know, when you had the mail order company, which I believe you started when you were in college, right? Yes. And so here you are still a young person. Of course, you had your good old newspaper route experience before that. No doubt you, you worked at other jobs as you went through college and high school and college and so on. Where do you think you got this mentality that you were always looking to be the best at every issue, especially the customer interfaces? Huh. I haven't given that a whole lot of thought. You know, some of my other jobs that they've all been kind of customer facing. So I did everything from deliver chicken. I worked as a bartender. I've had food bar businesses since college. It's been one company after another. So I've never worked for another company. So all I knew was my money came from happy customers. Okay. You know, and, and it's, it's a, and admittedly it's a deficit in my learning that, that I have no experience at large companies. So I have to surround myself with people that are, you know, more familiar and capable of implementing, you know, these, these processes as the company grows. I'm fortunate we've got a very good team around us, but as far as having, you know, me and Aaron, my, my partner, both are, are singularly focused on delivering the best experience for the surgeon, right? If they don't like it, they're not going to use it. And it just doesn't help anybody. Uh, so why, I think that why, bonded us. Why did he approach, what do you think motivated him to approach you about so, this opportunity when, because, and I'll tell the listeners that you were experimenting with doing some, you know, creating some 3D, excuse me, 3D printed horses that might replicate the, the horse a child has or a horse a, a child is yeah, training my, with or whatever. My wife has uh, an equestrian center, Esoteric Farm, right. and she takes our clients around. They do horse shows around the country. And I had sold my last couple of businesses and really been a stay-at-home dad for the first few years of my, my children's lives. And she's like, find something to do in the horse business so that I want to travel with her and go to horse shows. Right. Which right now there's nothing for me to do there, but watch our work. So, so we both liked the idea. And so somehow I came, you know, working with one, a couple of one of the other dads at the farm, the equestrian center, we kind of came up with the idea. We're going to build a photogrammetry rig, which is just hundred cameras on a bunch of poles and whatever you put in the middle, you take the simultaneous photo computer stitches them together and you can print a 3d model. And so I'm going to make 3d models for little girls at horse shows of them and their ponies and their ribbons and something to do. Right. Um, okay. We got the hardware working right. I couldn't get the pictures to stitch together. And as a side, I, I, I'm a mentor at a, a place in town called Capital Factory. And somebody there introduced, said, oh, I know this guy that can help you. And they introduced me to Aaron. At this time, he's a, a researcher, uh, a scientist at UT. And he comes over to the farm and tells me why my project's not going to work. <laughs> you need much more light. You need this, you need that. And it told me just things you can't do around horses. Like I could have made it to work for people. But that was not my goal. That wasn't getting me to horse shows. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. It kind of defeats the point. And he's like, all right, 
I had just, and this is, he had just recently met Dr. Lee for the first time. So we met a couple of times, became friends. And uh, he says, you know, I've got this scanner. I've got Dr. Lee. I really think I can make this product. You know, would you be interested in, in joining me on the journey? And that's when I was like, I don't want to get into medicine. I don't know anything about it. And I talked to my friends and um, and where they told me how hard it was and why I shouldn't do it. I felt insulted about that. And that's also around the time that I met Pat Cothy. He was kind of further down the right uh, line. He's had some experience. He was one of the people I talked to early on. This gave me a lot of good advice over the year. We still talk frequently and I've kind of watched him, you know, we kind of started our companies, the new, our latest companies at the same time. So we were kind of at the same places and uh, now he's actually bringing his product to market, which is very exciting. So I'll get to watch and learn from him as he does that. Yeah, exactly. He and I spoke the other day and he's making progress with his soft launch, which is a smart a smart thing to do. Less attention, yeah. Yeah, soft versus a hard launch. I don't think hard launch is really working anymore just because it assumes, well, excuse me. I guess if you were launching a new variety of a soft drink that was based off of a current standard soft drink like Coca-Cola or Pepsi or something like that. Okay, you could you could hard launch something like that. But if it's a new technology, something that's revolutionary, something that's new concept, I think it's pretty challenging. So do you question, do you ever have investors question your lack of uh, med tech experience? Probably all of them initially. Uh, okay. Some of them to my face, I'll get asked about that, you know, and, and my response is, you know, if you look at my history, every business I've been in, you know, it's not the same industry after another. I've been in electronics and telecom in, you know, in martial arts, I was a chief combatives instructor for the U S army. So I can get punched in the face and stay in the game. I've all, I've been successful at all of these one after another. I've had SaaS applications in the nineties. So if you point me at a target, I'll get there and I'll be pretty good at my predictions. Like I'm good at knowing where I'm going to end up. All of my projections are wrong. Every one of them all the time, but in the end, they're all off to, to degrees that complement each other. And I always end up kind of close to where I think I'm going to end up. And, and so far this is, this is working out that way, full of surprises. I'm wrong about everything, but I'm right about where we'd be at this time. Sure. It was the sure. big monkey wrench that that delayed clinical trials. That's that's where we're we're off at this point. Right. Yeah. And so you're not wrong by a huge amount. That's the point. Nothing deadly. Yeah. The goal is you know, never be so wrong that you can't recover. Correct. Correct. So what do you think some of the key characteristics are? I mean, we're 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 talking about some of them in some ways right now in terms of being a leader of a startup organization, you've started up many different companies and you've exited them and now you're in med tech. When you think about your, you know, the characteristics that you have and that you see other people demonstrate as they successfully business, as it's launching, as it's getting started, as it's building up, what do you think some of the key characteristics are? These are kind of well-known. It's not like I'm making these up, like I'm, I'm pulling these from other lists and, and things that I've heard. You know, grit is one of them. You know, I'm, you know, 
I'm very comfortable not knowing what's going to happen. I think that now that's very <laughs> interesting. Not comfortable not knowing what's going to happen. Okay, keep going. I that nobody has ever said that to me before. I think that's a common trait. Yeah, the the way they say it about entrepreneurs is is you can go from one failure to another with low lo no loss of enthusiasm. Okay. And, so throughout the day, like I said, you know, nothing quite goes exactly how we want, but, you know, be like water. You know, I find, you know, there can be the tiniest little hole, but I'll find it and we'll move forward and we'll get through things. And I can make decisions like that on the fly. Most decisions are easily reversible. So you just make them and go, right? As opposed to sitting and and struggling over things that in the end are really not that big a deal. Don't make mistakes that will kill you. That's a big one, right? I like you look at every day and every decision you got to make is, can I recover if I'm wrong? Yeah. And if the answer is no, there better be a really good reason to take that chance. Building the initial team is always the hard part. You know, getting that core five or six people, you know, right. to kind of gel into, you know, one cohesive mindset you know, and, and drive a product and is always a struggle because people, you know, every time we deal with people, right, um, they change. So, you know, my resources change regularly, you know, the goalposts, they're pretty stable at this point, but the hurdles along the way are shifting and we're adapting to those. I think everybody on the team now is pretty, you know, understanding about where we're going, what we know, what we don't know. And so they're prepared to, to deal with the challenges that come ahead with us. Right. Okay. okay. Not my no, strength, are... but not my strength, but, you know, farming out the things that you don't, you can't do as right. well. Be comfortable with that, you know, rent it when you, you know, if, if you can buy it, if you have to. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, th that's all really good stuff. And, Another thing that you, another quote you had when we were talking before was a, a particular key to success. Do you remember what you said? I don't. Okay. It was survive long enough to understand and build what the customer will pay for. Yeah, and that, that's, that's, a, that's a more eloquent way of saying what I just struggled to get across, right? <laughs> I need to build this product you know, right. that somebody loves and is willing to pay for. And I, I'm not a surgeon. I don't know exactly what that is. So right. what I think they need evolves over time. So I need to, yeah, I need to stay in business to figure that what that is and deliver it. Okay. And any other advice you'd have for people that are thinking about taking the leap into being the leader of a, a startup organization? Listen to everybody whether they seem more experienced or not, and then decide what and how you will react or assimilate what you learn. Even if you choose to dismiss it, you know, every, especially the opinions you don't like where they go counter, you're probably going to run across them again and be able to meet, to defend yourself against those things. So be more interested in hearing the bad news than the good news about your product. Your mom thinks it's beautiful. Your wife thinks it's the best thing ever, but it's it's the people who are going to use your product or give you money for it. Those are the opinions that matter. So focus on that. Don't get your feelings hurt 
right? It's not a personal thing. You it, enter it as if you're on a mission of discovery, not I've got a solution I'm going to shove down your throat. Okay. That's great advice. Anything like, is there anything that you look at every day that you read or uh, that you recommend to people, whether it's reading, like say it's a uh, internet newsletter or uh, a book or a magazine, any um, places that you're picking up guidance or ideas? The thing I'm onto lately are really podcasts. So I can okay. get my, I can multitask. I can get my 20 to 40 minute ride in my bike, you know, and listen to a podcast at the same time. I owe it always, you know, and there's a handful of good ones out there. It could be, have nothing to do with my business, but I always, I always pick up useful things that I can assimilate into, into myself, make me a better person. But the advice is that take the time to invest time in yourself and it could be a podcast is one way to do it. Listen, you know, search the podcast for areas that you're interested in that could be of help to you. And if I'm giving somebody life advice, you know, yeah. it's eat well, sleep well, and get enough exercise. That's how you make yourself the most competent human being you can. And then feed your mind, you know, with things of interest. I personally love watching events where other companies are pitching. Oh. Their devices. You can find, you know, a dozen a week if you look around where you find other medical device pitch contests. Okay. So it's good, you know, there's there's people I can tell very early on in their development. There's people that are very advanced. You learn a lot, you get to hear the questions. I mean, it's it's almost like getting to practice, you know, in your head and, and refine your your own story over time. And I've been, you know, I like the, or I hate to tell people, I've been working on my pitch deck for four years now. Okay. Uh, and it's almost there. Okay. <laughs> That's a good idea to, to watch pitch competitions and people pitch stuff. Excellent. Well, that's good. Well, I, I think we've covered everything and I really appreciate your time. And I appreciate you being a member of the MedTech Leaders community and also a listener of my podcasts and I wish you the best of luck, and I'm really excited to see how you make progress going forward. And I reserve the right to come back and ask you to participate in a podcast uh, maybe 18 months to two years from now as you're getting ready to soft launch. Talk about our launch. Well, you thank you. This has been fun, Ted. I appreciate it. And, and thank you for you know being one of the sources uh, of information that, again, I think helps add to my skill set. Okay. All right. Take care, Jeff. You too. Bye-bye. Jeff is a very interesting guy. He has some standout characteristics as a startup CEO. One that I have not always found in CEOs is the fact that since college, he has never worked for anyone but himself. Then the MedTech challenge, as he said, in quotes, lit him up. Add to that, his drive to get customers to be really passionate about his product, top that off with their singular focus to deliver the best experience for the surgeon. And finally, he said, if you point me at a target, I'll get there. I can tell you that advanced scanners technology is revolutionary. It looks to me like there is a formula for success here. Brains, effective technology, and great leadership. I can't wait to see where they are in 18 months. We all can't be a Jeff Levine. He is unusual 
and unusually competent. But we can be motivated to try to exercise some of our leadership and entrepreneurial muscles to be better at whatever we are doing today. Whether you are a sales rep in the field, a CEO leading a company, or somewhere in between, there is something for you in what he has shared. Find it and focus on it. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Now go win your week.